The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. For those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? Now I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. Sometimes a cartoon gets a hold of you and it seems like it won't let go. And there's one cartoon in particular that I feel that way about. Uh, and I, it relates to something that I'm sure many of you probably can remember. You know, back in the, I think in the early 70s, is when they started putting warning tags on, uh, on bedding. They put, it's on pillows and on mattresses often. And the warning says, do not remove this tag under penalty of law. Well, the cartoon is something like this. There's this small house, perhaps a cape, and it's surrounded by tanks and police cars. And down at the bottom, the caption is, come out with your hands up. We understand you've removed the tag. <laughs> Every time I see one of those tags, I think about that cartoon and I hesitate before I rip it off. <laughs> We're formed by strange things. The lesson uh, from the gospel today is about warnings. Jesus gives many warnings. And if you look ahead of this uh, gospel section, you'll find that there are some pretty severe warnings that have been handed out by Jesus just preceding this. He's traveling from village to village on his way to Jerusalem. And as he goes, it sounds as though there have been thousands that have been gathering around him. So he's speaking to large crowds, crowds of followers who believe they understand what Jesus is about, who believe that this is the one, perhaps, who has come, the Messiah, who will at long last relieve them of the burden of Rome. Well, then we hear this little snippet of someone apparently coming up to Jesus and talking to him about an, an event that happened in Jerusalem. They tell about 
uh, Galileans who have been killed by Pontius Pilate. And the way it's described in the scripture, their, their blood has been mingled with their sacrifices. So it sounds like the event happened in the temple precincts where the faithful worshipers had come to offer sacrifice. And rather than Jesus being uh, invited into some sort of condemnation of Rome or for him to say something that might get him in trouble with the authorities, Jesus comes back at them with something very strange. He says, do you believe that those Galileans were any more sinful than all other Galileans? And then he went on, or he answers the question, he says, no, indeed, they are not. And then he goes on to offer another example, and he talks about the 18 who had been killed when the tower fell at Salome. And he says, do you believe that those who were killed when that tower fell were any worse than any of the others who lived in Jerusalem? And of course, the answer is no. And Jesus said, Unless you change the way you live, you will die as they died. Unless you repent, unless you turn and go another way, you will die as they died. Now, I believe that this portion of Scripture has a, a many levels, and I think Jesus may, be, may have been addressing a number of things. First of all, I think we have to deal with the reality that uh, for many of us, there is a sense that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Uh, all clergy, I think, get a sense of that when you talk with some folks that have had a lot of tragedy in their life. Often in, in sort of a circumspect way, there'll be something that comes in that gives the sense that they feel that somehow what they have done in their life, something about the way they've lived their life has resulted in all of this tragedy, all of this badness that's come into their lives. And I know that you who have close friends have heard that as you've talked with friends who have gone through difficult times. But what Jesus says here is that that is not the case. That's a simplistic view. It certainly was the view of his time. They believed that if something bad had happened to someone, that was God's punishment on them. And if they had been blessed in their life, they were blessed by God because they must then be righteous. Jesus said it's not that easy. It is not that simple. And it's a wonderful reassurance to me at least, and I hope to you, to know that God does not deal with us in that way in this life. Now, without question, there are consequences to our actions. That's one thing. But to believe that God is punishing us because of something we have done in our life, that is just plain wrong. And the scripture is clear about that. But I think there may have been something else going on as well. He talked about those who had been slaughtered in Jerusalem. And the report came from Jerusalem, perhaps hoping that he would be this militant Messiah. I think Jesus was responding to them in part out of his sense that they just were not getting it. They just did not understand. They were not prepared or willing to accept a suffering Messiah. The Messiah they wanted was one who would lead the charge into Jerusalem, the one that would overthrow the Romans and make it all right again. And Jesus seems to be saying to them, and looking back over history, perhaps we can read into it, that this too will happen to you, what happened to those people in Jerusalem and at the Tower of Siloam. Because if you continue to go on your militant, nationalistic ways, 
You will die as they have died. And in fact, that happened. Jerusalem was destroyed. It was said that you could plow across Jerusalem. It was so completely and utterly destroyed in A.D. 70. And many, many, many people died, just as those had died when the tower had fallen at Siloam. I think that Jesus has given warning to them for their time, but also to us for our time. It's easy, I think, for us to look at others and see the sin of the other and not recognize that we have our own sin to deal with in our lives. And it's easy to think that perhaps God will take care of all of that by punishing those who have been sinful. But it really goes much deeper than that. Ultimately, we must be responsible for ourselves. We must be responsible for ourselves before God and realize, you know, the procrastinators that we are, we always think there's plenty of time. We, I, I can't help but think today being my birthday, and I'm not telling you that, so you get... <laughs> So I get some sort of uh, positive feedback about that. But every year that goes by, I tend to think of myself as still being fairly young and realize that time is fleeting. It's going through my fingers. And I think in part Jesus is saying that to that crowd, that multitude following him. Time is fleeting. It's going through your fingers. Seize the day. Today, turn. Turn toward God. I believe that during this Lenten season, we have a wonderful opportunity to do that. It offers us the chance to take an inventory of our own lives and to think about what it is that we have done, what it is that we have left undone, what has been said or thought that perhaps needs to be different. We need to repent daily, and Lent offers an opportunity for us to do that. Yesterday, we had a special convention and the preacher at our convention was one of the most amazing preachers I have ever heard, uh, perhaps rivaling only uh, Peter Gomes, who is, as you know, such an amazing preacher himself. Uh, bishop Michael Curry is the Bishop of North Carolina, and he's, he's funny, but he's also to the point, and you get the point very clearly. And in the course of his uh, great sermon yesterday, uh, he talked about how where he comes from, everybody's a Baptist. He said, well, some are Baptist Presbyterians, some are Baptist Methodists, some are Baptist Episcopalians, but they're really all Baptists. And he said, I tell my people that when they ask you, have you been born again? Have you been saved? He said, tell them yes, brother. I have been saved. I have been baptized. I am one of God's. And I am born again today, tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after that, born again and again and again. And that is what God calls us to, is that kind of rebirth that happens day after day after day. If we allow ourselves to reflect on who we are in the presence of God and to reflect on what it is that stands between us and God. And I think one way we do that is very quietly in the evening at night is perhaps the best time after we've gone through a busy day. And to ask God to reveal to us what it is that God would have us reconsider in our lives. What is it that stands between us and God and perhaps between us and a family member or a friend or someone at work? I think there's an, another opportunity that for some may be particularly appropriate. 
Many do not know that we in the Episcopal Church practice a form of confession, personal confession. And it's called the reconciliation of a penitent. And if you want to look in your prayer book, it's on page 447 of the prayer book. And like uh, almost everything in the prayer book, there are two forms. There's form one and form two. <laughs> and it's a how it, how it works when people come for personal confession is that often uh, the person will sit in a room uh, with the priest and will begin a conversation with the understanding that that conversation is is under the soul, as the old term goes. It is a confessional. Then if you look over at 446, you'll see how important this is in terms of the confidentiality of it. At the bottom of 446, these are the, the rubrics for uh, confession in our church. And the last paragraph says, the content of a confession is not normally a matter of subsequent discussion. In fact, we are trained not to ever bring the topic up with the person with whom we have met. It's between that person and God, and we're simply there to hear and to pronounce God's, God's absolution, God's, God's forgiveness. And then it goes on and it says, the secrecy of a confession is morally absolute for the confessor, that is the priest who hears it, and must under no circumstances be broken. Some clergy have perjured themselves in order to, or have been in contempt of court in order not to reveal the contents of a confession. The confession is an opportunity for a person to come to another human being and hear the words in their own ear as though it was from the church and from God, certainly on behalf of the church and God, that you are forgiven. It is all set aside. It is all wiped clean forever. I had a friend in seminary who had been through a, a difficult divorce and she said she spent many hours and dollars with a psychiatrist and finally after a few years uh, the psychiatrist said to her, you know, you could have saved thousands of dollars if you'd just gone to a priest and made your confession. He had been hearing her confession week after week. Sometimes all we need is to say to another living human being, maybe it's a priest, Maybe it's a friend. There's something on my heart that I have to let go of. And will you please tell me that it has been let go of and set aside? You don't need to come to Nick or to me to do that. You might go to a friend. You might go to another priest in the diocese. But I think for some, that may be just the sort of thing that can make this Lent a particularly blessed Lent. And finally, what I want to say about these warnings that we have from Jesus this morning, I think it's especially important that we remember that the warnings of Jesus are really an expression of God's love. God loves us so much that God can't even give God's warnings to us without us finding love in it. Listen to the warnings and hear in it the cry of a God who wants to be close to us and wants nothing to stand between God and us. I believe that that is the great gift of a season such as Lent, when we realize that God cares for us that much, that God is willing to do almost anything to draw near to us. May this Lent continue to be a blessing in your life.
And maybe it be an opportunity for you to take an assessment of your life and offer to God those things that are too heavy to carry. Amen.